The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Happy 2020. It's going to be, I trust, a good year. And uh, as we come around our teaching series uh, for this Sunday, as we commence our teaching, preaching ministry for 2020, we're going to be exploring four statements of Jesus, four statements connected to the theme that we have been considering 2019 and now 2020, and that is the theme of? That's great. Kingdom. Kingdom. <laughs> kingdom, being God's kingdom citizens. Now, as we're going to see, these pronouncements of Jesus have something in common, and that is they all contain this pivotal word, unless. And so we've entitled this series, Unless. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Also in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, unless you change and become like one of these, he's talking to the crowd and then he points to some toddlers and says, unless you become like one of these, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And there are other passages and pronouncements that we're going to reflect on in this series. The one we're going to look at today is found in John's gospel, John chapter 3. And so if you've got your Bibles, please grab those and find John chapter 3. We're going to look at and explore the first 15 verses This is a well-known passage. It uh, is about Jesus and his interaction with a religious, very astute man, very respected man in his day named Nicodemus. And so this is what we discover in this passage. Jesus used this word unless twice in this passage. So verse 1. Now there was a man, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's right up there, very respectable figure. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, this would have really rocked Nicodemus, by the way, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, and here's the word, unless they are born again. In response, Nicodemus says, how, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, the reason why I read it that way is because I don't think Nicodemus is being stupid here. I think he's being very suspicious of Jesus. He's being dismissive, like, give me a break, Jesus. Be born again. What the heck's that? So Jesus says in verse 5, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, and here it is again, unless... They are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. We have spoken to you of earthly things, 
and you do not believe? How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the miracle of your word. Thank you for today. It's already been prayed. Thank you that we're alive in 2020. I pray that you would cause your word to live today in our lives. You would cause it to be fresh and you would cause each of us to truly know your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought the best way to unpack and tackle this first unless pronouncement is to ask four straightforward but massive questions, significant questions, and the first is this, the what question, uh, and it's this, what, what does Jesus actually mean when he says to Nicodemus in verse 3, Nicodemus, you, you've got to be born again. Now, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. In other words, what does Jesus want us to have in mind when we think about being born again? Well, for us to discover what Jesus means, we need to hang about and dig deep into verse 5 because it's here in this verse that Jesus teases out for Nicodemus and for us what it actually means to be born again. And so in verse 5, he says in response to Nicodemus's skepticism, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless, now he adds these pivotal explanatory words, they are born of, here we go, two key words, water and the spirit. Now, question. How many of you now know what it means to be born again? Stephen's going to say that. Wow. You should come and preach. <laughs> I, I thought that might happen. Because we're still scratching our heads thinking, okay, to be born again means, according to Jesus, to be born of water and the Spirit. But Jesus, what does that mean? Like, really? And at this point, many... Scholars, theologians put forward their interpretations and some are really helpful. But is there anything in our text that gives us a tip-off, a bit of a hint? And the answer is yes. It's found in verse 10. Listen to how Jesus responds to Nicodemus. He criticizes Nicodemus here. Listen to what he says. He says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand now these things. Referring back to verse 3, you must be born again. Verse 5, you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Verse 7, you've got to be born again. In other words, he's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you are the scholar in Israel. Notice he says, the teacher of Israel. Not You're not just one teacher, but you're the chief theologian in the nation, for crying out loud. And still you don't understand what I'm telling you. You don't understand what I'm teaching you. And of course, what's implied is that Nicodemus should have understood. Why? Because what Jesus is saying here, what he's teaching, is in the scriptures that Nicodemus knew so well and often taught. I mean, he was Israel's teacher. And of course, Jesus is referring to the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures we call as Christians, the Old Testament. And so to find out what Jesus means by you've got to be born again, you've got to be born of water and the Spirit, we need to plow the ground of the Old Testament to unearth what this means. And when we actually do that, this is what we discover, this incredible prophetic promise that God makes his people 
the ancient Israelites in Ezekiel chapter 36. This passage that Nicodemus would have read a hundred times, probably taught on a hundred times, but because of his unbelief, he didn't make the connection. He didn't really grasp what Jesus was getting at. So this is Ezekiel chapter 36. This is what God says through the lips of Ezekiel. Then, notice, I will sprinkle what? Clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you'll no longer worship idols. So God's not talking about external washing here. He's talking about internal purification. He's going to drown away their idols. He's going to give them a new heart because as we continue, this is what God says, and I will give you a new heart and I'll put, here's the second key word, a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So God is saying here what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, that this being born of water and the spirit is God's act, his supernatural act, this conversion act, this resurrection, as it were, act deep in the human heart that brings about transformation, that brings about inner cleansing, that brings about inner renewal, that brings about inner replenishment and revival, in other words. And so when Jesus says you've got to be born again, this is what he is talking about. In short, he's talking about conversion, regeneration, coming to life and being made brand spanking new. For those of us who have experienced the born again experience, this is what happened, wasn't it? You remember? It was like someone washed you internally. I remember when I was born again, it was like God took away my brain with all its filth and chaos and sin and gave me a new brain, gave me a new heart and totally renewed me. That's what it means to be born again. And this is what Jesus means when he says to Nicodemus, come on, you've got to be born again. So second question, it flows out of this first one. Why is this important? Why is this important? Why is being born again such a big deal? Well, the answer is obvious. It's in the text. It's obvious, but still very serious. Again, listen to what Jesus says. He says in verse 3, If you haven't had this inner, radically transformative experience of God's Spirit in your heart, you cannot see the kingdom. In verse 5, Jesus strengthens the language and he says, Not only will you not see, you will not enter. You will not step a millimeter into God's kingdom if you're not born again, if you haven't received the Spirit, if you haven't been radically changed from the inside. You, you won't enter. And then to make these two pronouncements, these unless statements, even stronger and more forceful, Jesus places a double amen at the beginning of each of these pronouncements. The NIV translates it, very truly I tell you. But in Greek it's amen, amen. If you are not born again, you will not see the kingdom. When we use amen at the end of our prayers, what do we mean? Or you're in a prayer meeting and someone prays a really good prayer like, Lord, we really need rain in our land. And we say, amen. We mean, let it be so. May it come to pass. May this prayer that someone just uttered materialize. When Jesus puts the double amen before these two statements, what he is saying is this. What I'm about to tell you will come to pass most certainly. 
It's an emphatically emphatic statement, hence the two amens. He's essentially saying you can bank your entire existence on the trustworthiness and the reliability of my words here. And the implication I think Jesus would say to us would be something like, so don't slouch in your chairs this morning, church. He would say, don't be given over to the cares of this life, PCC. He would say, don't be distracted by mere trivialities. I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to buy this, I've got to go there. He would say, pay careful, close attention to my words. He would say, put every ounce of energy into focusing on the massive significance here. These words, you must be born again. And so this is why these words must be born again are massively significant. Because if we're not, then we're not going to enter the kingdom of God. We're not going to see it. We're not going to taste it. We're not going to participate in it. And you know, church, one of my concerns, big fears, if you want to know one of my big fears, is it's this. As a Christian, I become too familiar with God, too familiar with Jesus. And as a pastor, we as a church become too familiar with Jesus. You know what I mean? We just become too accustomed with his words and it becomes very casual at church and we listen to sermon after sermon, podcast after podcast and it just becomes very lightweight and casual. We don't really take Jesus seriously. We don't tune into his words, words like these. You've got to be born again. You know, when I was at Bible college, the principal at the time was a guy called David Cook and he wrote a number of books and one of them was entitled The Unheeded Christ, the unheeded Christ. And in the book, he warns of the danger of becoming too casual, too familiar, too pally pally with Jesus. Like, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. I'm his homeboy. It's all fluffy. It's very hippie-ish, this kind of relationship with Jesus, very candy floss relationship with Jesus. And he says, Jesus is king. He's king. And kings make demands of their subjects. Kings must be listened to. Kings must be obeyed. Kings must be heeded. And so my question this morning is, are we heeding King Jesus when he says you must be born again? Hear his words and hear his heart break for you this morning. Because essentially he's saying, this is not an optional extra. Like, okay, you do your churchianity thing and, and you'll be okay. No, he's saying, no, 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 this is absolutely essential. You must be born again. You must experience this inner transformative work of the Holy Spirit. If not, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. Now, many people in our contemporary age, many modern people at this point start to have issues with Christianity. And I understand, because I haven't always been a follower of Jesus. People in our culture begin to say, oh, hold on a minute, Jesus. Seriously, you're violating my independence here. You're violating our human autonomy here. You're saying, I've got to do something? I've got to surrender to you? I must be born again? And people in our age, in our contemporary age, our culture begin to bristle at this point and kind of push back. And, and I kind of understand that to a degree. In fact, one uh, scholar, professor of humanities, Columbia University, New York City, a guy called Mark Litter, probably haven't heard of him, but he does live, he, he does exist, and he's a professor of this very prestigious university. Uh, when he was a young man, he flirted with born-again Christianity. He almost became a Christian, but what turned him off was this passage that we're in today. 
as a young guy, he read this passage and thought, wow, Jesus is making these demands of us. And so he didn't become a Christian. And in 2005, he wrote an essay in the prestigious magazine, the New York Times magazine. And this is what he says. He says, quote, Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus that he must recognize his own insufficiency, that he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. And then he adds these words, very indicative of where our culture is at. He says, that seems like a radical challenge to our freedom. And it is, he says, it is. That is, this is possibly the greatest issue modern people have with Christ, with these demands, with Christianity. Because they believe at best Christianity is restrictive and at worst oppressive. Because in the modern mind, to be human is to be what? Free. Free from all constraints. Free from all restrictions. That's what it means to be human. In other words, many people in our culture believe what Elsa in the movie Frozen sings about. Remember this movie? I know Frozen 2 is out now and you've all forgotten about Frozen 1. But she sings, it's time to see what I can do. I was really tempted to sing it then, but I won't. Look, it's brave of me to wear a pink shirt like this, so loud, okay? I'm not going to sing as well. It's time to see what I can do. I'm not singing it. This is a serious sermon, all right? To test the limits and break through. (laughs) Stop it. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, she sings. I'm free. Like, I have no constraints now. I'm free, free, free. And so I think Elsa would push back against Jesus. Jesus said, you've got to be born again. And Elsa's like, no, I want to be free, Jesus. Haven't you heard the song over and over and over and over again? No right, no rules, no wrong, whatever it is. For me, I'm, I'm free. I'm free. I think this view of freedom is reductionistic. It's limited because this is not really how freedom works. True freedom. How do you discover true freedom? Well, you do by taking on yourself some certain restrictions you lose lesser freedoms in order to discover a greater freedom for example a little example from my childhood all right this is a happy story when i was 13 my dad placed on me (laughs) he listens to these podcasts dad i love you he placed on me a dietary restriction and it was big like he took away the freedom of junk food and the reason why he did that twofold the first was because believe it or not I was a barrel I was a first class oompa seriously short round I was really really tubby and so my dad thought man you got to drop some kilos and I moved in with my dad it's a long story I won't go into it and so that's the main one of the main reasons why he did it but the but the quintessential reason why he put me on this diet so that my freedom to eat lollies and hot chips restricted is because he wanted me to excel listen he wanted me to excel in the sport I madly loved and still love namely football football we call it soccer here you're not allowed to call it soccer in England that's the unpardonable sin in the UK you cannot call football soccer there you'll get killed and so he put me on this diet 
And within six months, I was my ideal weight, which meant, of course, that I enjoyed playing the game I loved all the more because I could run faster and I was more agile. Now, how did that come about? Well, it came about by me accepting a restriction on my freedom. No lollies for you, or we call them sweeties in England. No sweeties, no hot chips. And I did occasionally sneak some hot chips. I do remember this one time I was in the bush stuffing hot chips into my face to get, <laughs> Daddy, you can't see me now. But I've never told him that. Now he knows, all right? He's listening to the podcast. But I was a good boy most of the time. I said, Dad, I don't get this. I love junk food. But okay, I will trust you. I'll take on this restriction. I'll lose certain freedom. And when I did that, I started to enjoy the greater, sweeter freedom of playing the game I loved more skillfully and more successfully. You see, this is how true freedom works, church. To enjoy a career or to enjoy a rewarding friendship or a relationship, that's what has to happen. You need to say goodbye to a degree, your independence and autonomy. When you have a friendship and one friend is saying, not my will, but your will be done, and the other friend says, yeah, that's right, my will be done, that's not a great friendship. But when the two friends or the two spouses in that relationship say, look at each other and say, not my will be done, but your will be done, I will bend for you, I will adjust for you, that makes for a happy friendship, a fulfilling friendship, a freeing friendship, a freeing marriage. But you notice how that comes about? by saying no to a degree to independence and self-centeredness and autonomy. This is how true freedom works. And so Mark Liller is right to a degree. Jesus is challenging Nicodemus. He is challenging you. He is saying you've got to lose a certain aspect of your freedom. But no, he's not saying I want to ruin your life. He's saying I want you to know the sweetest freedom there is to know, and that is to be born again. To know the king, to come into the kingdom now and in the future, to be dazzled by the beauty of the king and all the wonders that are going to be in his eternal kingdom. And so this is why what Jesus is saying, you must be born again, is so critically important because if we're not, then we're not going to participate in it. And, and, and it, but if we are, then we'll discover the ultimate liberating restriction, namely the kingdom of God, the kingdom being under his liberating rule and reign. Does that make sense? Just say amen. You'll encourage me. Say, like, oh, wow, that was, that was a long-winded example, but I trust you got it. If you didn't get it, chat to me afterwards, and I'll explain it all over again. Third question, how can we know that we've been born again? This is a big one. What is being born again? We've looked at that. Why is it important? We've looked at that. This question, how can we know that we've been born again? In other words, is there a way that we can tell or discern that the Spirit of Christ is actually in us? Is there a way? And your answer is, thanks be to God, yes. Yes, in fact, Jesus hints at an answer here in verse 8. Listen to what he says. He gives us an analogy. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, amongst other things, in this analogy, Jesus is saying something like this. He's saying, look, even though you can't fully discern or understand the origin of the wind or the Holy Spirit, you can still see and discern the unmistakable, undeniable effects of both the wind and the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And we agree with that. I mean, we see the effects of the wind everywhere. You see the the grass swaying, the effects of the wind. 
You see the trees bending, the effects of the wind. In the UK especially, you see the clouds moving so fastly. The clouds in the UK are always in a hurry, the effects of the wind. And so Jesus is saying, well, it's the same with someone who is born again. There will be some signs. There will be some effects, undeniable, unmistakable signs. And so the question becomes, okay, then what are the unmistakable signs of the Spirit that demonstrate and show that a person has been born again? And when you come to the New Testament, you're given many signs many a signs we only have time for one the major sign the prominent sign the one that's repeated over and over again the sign of the spirit which is l-o-v-e all you need is love for example love for god primarily and love for others four aspects of love here that the bible details first love for christ Love for Jesus is the ultimate sign that one has been born again. Love for Jesus. In John's Gospel, John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to some religious leaders, some Jewish leaders, and these leaders want to kill Jesus. And so in response, in verse 42, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, if God were your father, and that's what it means to be born again, to have God as your father, and you become his child, son or daughter, he says, you would love me. If you were born again, in other words, you would love me. Of course, the implication is those who have been born again actually do love Jesus. Jesus becomes the treasure of their heart. You start to treasure, cherish Jesus. That the posture of your heart is like Peter's posture in John chapter 6. Remember that? Jesus, a big crowd's following Jesus, and they start to leave Jesus, abandon Jesus, because Jesus challenges them. He says something that offends them. And the 12 are left with Jesus. He turns to them and says, are you going to leave as well? And Peter, good old Peter, he steps forward, he pipes up and he says, Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Jesus, the thought of leaving you is breaking my heart. Because I, I love you. I realize that you're my treasure. You're the savior. And you know, Peter didn't get and understand everything. He, he knew that much. So have we ever prayed this way? Words like that, Jesus, my life is nothing without you. I'm lost without you. My life is empty without you. If so, then that's the witness of the Spirit. It's a sign that we have been born again because we love Jesus. Listen, this is a caution. It is very, very possible to sing all the right words about Jesus. It is possible to believe all the right things about Jesus, score 100 out of 100 on your Christological test, and yet still not love Jesus. Jesus is the sign that one has been born again. So I ask each of us, do we love Jesus? Is he the treasure of your heart? Is he the treasure of my heart? If so, then you've been born again. You've been born again. Second aspect of love, love for Jesus' people. You know, it's common today. You hear it all the time. I hear it all the time, and it's scary. People say, oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah, I love him. But his people, they suck. And I haven't got time for them. And so I just do... I do church at home, podcasts, watch TV, it's just Jesus. That, that's not Christianity. The Bible condemns that. The Bible knows nothing of that kind of behavior. What does the Bible say? Listen to what we're told here, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. He's talking about inside the church. He's talking to us PCites here this morning. 
Let us love one another. For love comes from God. Now listen, he makes it crystal clear for us. Everyone who loves, that is each other, other Christians, has been born of God. Born of God. Again, this is a mark of the Holy Spirit, a sign that someone has been born again. You just love other Christians. You love doing ministry and life with other Christians, which, which doesn't mean, by the way, just want to take the monkey off your back, that we necessarily get along all the time, that we always like each other. I mean, come on, let's be real. We annoy each other. Yeah. I annoy you. I've probably been... You hear that? Love you, brother. Love you, mate. He said all the time. In a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, we are often culturally clumsy. You know what I'm talking about? We step on each other's toes and we offend each other. We annoy each other. Get up each other's noses. It's to be expected. What happens in family, right? But in family, you stay together. Church, we stay. Why? Because of love. Love covers a multitude of it's a sign that the Spirit is at work. And so we continue, with offense and all, to extend mercy and forgiveness because notice this love comes from God. It's like you're in God, receiving, receiving, so that you can give, give, give. If you're not receiving, that's dangerous. You won't have nothing to give. You won't be able to extend love and compassion. That's why some of you are so uptight and so offended. I probably offended you by saying that. That's okay. You love me and I love you. I love you so much that I will tell you that. That's love. I'm getting way off track here. Let's come back. It's a sign of the Spirit. Number three, we start to love other people in general, but in particular, the vulnerable and the needy. James here, good old James, James 1, 27, he says, religion that God our Father, again, that's born again language, God our Father accepts. In other words, the kind of faith that pleases him is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, if you have the Spirit, you're going to care about, increasingly care about what God cares about in the world. And God cares about many things, but right there at the top of the list, He cares about those who struggle to care for themselves. James says, widows, orphans, and you could add to that list, refugees, and asylum seekers, and those who are doing it tough because of the fires, and the list goes on and on. Of course, God realizes that we cannot meet every single need but as Christians, we pray and the Lord leads us to meet a need, to come alongside a people group or someone who's struggling. That's the motion and the movements of the Holy Spirit in one's life. Number four, we begin to love those without Jesus. Love for Jesus, love his people, love people in general, in particular those who are needy and vulnerable. And also we love those without Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is a passage all about witnessing, about being ambassadors, he'll preach at the end of last year. The Apostle Paul in verse 14, he says, the love of Christ compels us. The love compels us. You've got the spirit of Jesus, you're going to be filled with the love of Jesus that will compel you to witness. You won't be okay with being private in your faith. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not a private spirit. He's public. He's been sent into the world, says Jesus. He's been sent into your back pocket so you can keep him safe. He wants to make you public. He wants you to go public with your faith. And so if you've been born again, 
it's natural to be concerned for people's eternal salvation. And so these are the aspects of love. This is the main sign that someone has been born again. So how are we doing this morning? How are we doing? If this sign is prominent, come on, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves, not deceive ourselves, not delude ourselves. Let's be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word this morning. If this sign is prevalent, prominent in our lives, then we have been born again. But if not, in all likelihood, we have not been born again yet. Oh, we may have done a lot of churchianity, but we haven't come to know Christ yet. And so that leads us to the last question, the most important question, and that is, how can we be born again? How can we be born again? When Jesus says to us in verse 7, you must be born again, what does he want us to do? How, how are we to respond to his demand here? Jesus, what do you want me to do? And you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to do just one thing. <laughs> one wonderful, massive thing that will require a lot of humility. And it's found in verse 15. Look there with me. This is what Jesus says. Everyone who believes, there it is, there's the condition, believes. Notice Jesus is not being exclusive here. He's not discriminating. He's saying, Everyone, anyone, irrespective of where you've come from, ethnicity, your morality, what you've done, your life, it doesn't matter. Everyone who, who believes may have, here's the promise, eternal life. Eternal life is just a synonym for being born again and entering the kingdom of God. And isn't this refreshing, church? Seriously, we should be rejoicing in our seats saying, one thing. Not a hundred things. Jesus doesn't say to us, oh, you want to be born again? Great. I've got a hundred hoops for you to jump through, all right? We're going to start with sacred special clothing. And I want you to pray this kind of way and this many times in the day. And, and once you've done that, and there's some other religious ceremonies. And, and once you've done all that, maybe just maybe you will be born again. That's not Jesus because that's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. Christianity is not a ladder with a hundred rungs and at the top is eternal life and I've got to climb the ladder. No, no, no. Christianity is one rung and it's believe. Believe. But the question becomes, believe in whom? Like believe in what exactly? It's just vague belief. Yeah, I believe. I believe. What does Jesus mean? Well, let's go back to the text. Jesus makes it very, very clear. And the reason why he makes it clear is because he loves you. He doesn't want you to be under any misguided notions. He wants you to know. He wants us to know. Listen to what he says here. Just back up verse 14. He gives us an Old Testament illustration. And then he applies it. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Nicodemus would have known that story very very well it's found in numbers 21 we'll come to it in just a minute he says just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up this term lifted up in John's gospel is mentioned four times and each time it refers to the cross the rugged cross the block of wood in which the prince of glory died the cross he says so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in what believes in him believes in the cross, believes in what the cross means, may have eternal life. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? I pray that each of us would really hear what Jesus is saying this morning. He's saying this. He's saying, look, you remember Nicodemus, what happened in Numbers 21? You know that time and Nicodemus would be like, 
I remember. The ancient Israelites, the people of God, they sinned against God. They sinned. And it wasn't just a small little sin. They complained and they whinged against God for a year on end. They just whinged, whined, 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 whined over and over and over and over again. Oh, God, it was better in Egypt. There were slaves in Egypt. They say it was better there. At least we had food. At least we had bread. You brought us out into the desert and you're going to kill us. And your servant, servant Moses hasn't got a clue what he's doing. And after years of that, God's like, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to judge them for their ungratefulness. Ungratefulness is a sin, by the way. Always whinging complaints is a sin. And so what does he do? God sends snakes into the camp. Venomous snakes. And these snakes bit the complainers. And a lot of them died. And yet those on the brink of death, they cried out to God for mercy. God, we realize we've been ungrateful and sinful and we've sinned against your servant Moses. And God in his grace... Grace, pure grace. They didn't deserve life. They deserve death forever. And God in his grace, he says, okay, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to uh, provide for my people. I'm going to extend grace and mercy to them. This is what I want you to do. I want you to fasten and fashion a bronze snake and I want you to put it on a large pole and I want you to lift it up in view of all the people. I want you to put it up high so that those who, now listen to this, those who look may live. Those who look may live. Now, Jesus is alluding to this, and he's saying to each of us, as he said to Nicodemus, this is how you are born again. You've got to look to me, the ultimate means of rescue, salvation, the ultimate provision of God in the cross. You've got to look in order to live. You've got to humble yourself like the people of Israel had to do that, to confess their sin, humble themselves. And as you look to me, you will live. You'll be born again if you trust in me that what I did for you on the cross was for you to carry your guilt, to carry your shame. A lot of you have felt shame for years. Jesus carried it to the cross so that if you look to him, you will live, live, know this life. I believe Jesus would say to some of you, you've been looking in so many places for life. You know, because to be human is to look somewhere for life, for meaning, for identity, to work, possessions, career, travel, education, a relationship. And yet Jesus says to you this morning, these things, even though some of them are my gifts, if you put all your affection into these, you will still be left high and dry. You can only know life in me. And so Jesus would say to you, as he says to me, as he said to Nicodemus, look to me and you will live. I wonder, are we looking this morning? Are we trustingly looking to Jesus. You know what thrills my heart? It's remarkable that at the end of John's gospel, guess where we find Nicodemus, this skeptic? We find him at the foot of the cross. And not only at the foot of the cross, we find this religious man, this man who trusted in his own religiosity and morality, we find him helping Jesus off the cross. Nicodemus was one of the guys who buried Jesus, who anointed Jesus. In other words, Nicodemus finally associated, identified himself with Christ, the Messiah. He looked and he did experience life. And my encouragement as we begin 2020 is that we would look, for the first time, look to Jesus. 
And if you've already done that, that we'll continue, as Charles wonderfully prayed, that we'll continue to look and look again to Jesus, because in him there is life, in the kingdom there is freedom. And we pray. Thanks, team. Lord Jesus, there is freedom in you. And I pray that this would be our experience, our discovery. You are so good. We deserve death, all of us, because of our wretchedness. But oh, oh, because of your grace, we can know life, this eternal life, be born again, experience this inner, radically transformative work. And I pray, Lord God, that this would be everyone's experience here. Lord, this day. Lord, I pray for those who have not been born again, that they would look, trustingly look to you, Lord Jesus, today. You came for them, to die for them, to cover their guilt, to take away their shame, to alleviate their fears. Lord, I pray, oh God, that you would do this by your spirit in their lives. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord God, who have looked and we are looking still. Would you enable us to look all the more? Lord, would you help us not lose our first love, Lord? Lord, may we treasure you more intensely this year. It may be a year of treasuring and cherishing you, Lord Jesus, all the more. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.